This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 3rd of June 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello, I'm Emma Nelson, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, I'm joined in the studio by the radio and television broadcaster Petrock Trelawney. Good morning, Petrock. What have you spotted in the papers? Hello. Lots to talk about. Could super robots spell the end of democracy? Uh, <laughs> is it a crisis in arts funding as BP, British Petroleum, ends its sponsorship of the British Museum in London and a great Parisian maker of cocktails retires? Brilliant. Hope you can come around to my house. Also coming up, we head to Paris as France is spared a downgrade of its sovereign debt. And it's the same thing that draws us to serial killers, true crime. It's this fascinating look at the extremes of humanity. We dig into the world of the cult with the author, Beth Lewis. First, though, a quick look at the news. More than 250 people have been killed in a train crash in India. 850 were also injured in the multiple train collision in India's eastern Odisha state. A passenger train is thought to have derailed before being struck by at least one other. Up to 10,000 people have had to evacuate their homes as wildfires spread in eastern Canada. Forest fires are burning in nearly all the country's provinces. More than 2.7 million hectares have been destroyed so far this year in Canada. That's more than 10 times the average area typically burned by this time of year. And France has been spared the embarrassment of a downgrade of its sovereign debt. S&P left the country's AA rating untouched after a regular review, but it warned the outlook remained negative due to risks to our forecast for France's public finances amid its already elevated general government debt. And those are the headlines on Monocle Radio. So it's a pleasure to have in the studio Patrick Trelawney, a classical music broadcaster and a small broadcaster up the road that occasionally <laughs> we might know and talk about here on Monocle Radio. How are you, Patrick? I'm it's very good to well have you indeed. With it's great to be here. Very good to be here. I must confess, I've never seen a person take such a physical approach to a newspaper. We And it's good because, you know, we're all online scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. This is a man, ladies and gentlemen, who has taken a pen and a hand to the paper. Oh, I love ripping papers apart. He's yes. literally taken all our papers apart. And it's, it, I mean, it's ruined it for the rest of us. But who cares? Because it's absolutely wonderful. This is, dare I say it, Patrick, this is kind of old school. Well, it is old school. I have subscriptions to many of the newspapers on my phone, on my laptop. I read them online. But I do love, particularly at the weekends, the physical nature of newsprint. Listen to it. And it's lovely. Makes a gorgeous noise. It's lovely to touch. It's lovely to hold. I'm I'm a child of newsprint, I suppose. I started my career working for a local newspaper down in the west of England where there were printing presses under the newsroom rolling away. And I haven't given up on it yet. Of course, it's still also a big part of the newspaper industry. It still makes newspapers money. It's, it's easier to monetize newsprint than it is online uh, news coverage. So, yeah, I'm sticking by it for the time being. I love arriving at a newsagent and seeing a great pile of newspapers and magazines. It does, it, for me, it does. It's, it's a, it appeals to the nose as much as it, it does, does to the eye. It does have a lovely smell, doesn't it? Definitely it's has a smell. absolutely mm. glorious. And we are big fans of print here at Monocle. Obviously. It's also the beauty of it. You know, no one's quite worked out how to make newspaper websites look really gorgeous. Whereas 
the pleasure of the sub-editors and the designers laying out pages of newspapers and magazines. Let's celebrate their art. Which gives us the, the serendipity of turning a page and being surprised. Whereas what I find desperately sad is you just scroll and click and you think, oh, I don't want to bother with that. I don't want... and, and you're driven to certain directions, aren't you? You find yourself clicking through. There's a story about uh, a subject and then there'll be two or three other stories related to that. And before you know where you are, y- you've left the, the general kind of, oh, I'll read the newspapers and see what's going I've on. Suddenly Whereas... find I know a lot about the inside of Kim Kardashian's house and I'm not quite sure how I got there it's, very it's a easy, dirty feeling. Very easy to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. All right, so you've been rummaging, ripping, tearing and and, and annotating as mm. well. I mean, I can see extensive circling of yeah. highlighted paragraphs. Good man. That's because my eyesight's going. Oh, don't. I haven't got my glasses on today, so ladies and gentlemen, we're utterly busking it. Um, what have you spotted? You've We've talked about the authenticity of reading stuff on a piece of paper, um, but we have a sort of doom and gloom, sort of apocalyptic vision inside the yeah. Times of how actually AI is going to be writing all this stuff. Anyway. Yeah, they've gone big big to down AI. I mean, this is after the, the statement from the Centre for AI Safety this week. Uh, just 23 words long, but one of the words it contained was extinction, uh, which has obviously got everybody talking about AI. You know, from fake news and falling in love with a machine rather with a human being to the idea of killer robots, the idea of if we empower AI soldiers, will they ultimately take control. Uh, One threat is if you tell AI that it's got to fix global warming, it decides the only way to do that is to extinguish the human race and invents some sort of virus to do so. Uh, They've got a really interesting interview with uh, Joshua Bengio, uh, who's one of the the signatories of of that statement, one of the godfathers of artificial intelligence, as he's called. He's a professor uh, in uh, Canada at Montreal University. And he wants a sort of institution like CERN, which does particle physics research, to be set up to fund and lead the way on AI. So it it stays, in essence, something that's very controllable. It doesn't go into the hands of a whole load of of private companies, of of, of a million new Elon Musks who might want to use it for their own motives. I fear a little bit that the ship sailed. The the reason being is that you get companies now, for example, if you have a big organisation which is hiring someone, it will often use AI to to sift. sift. Yeah, and you have all these. But there was a big problem a couple of years ago. I can't remember if it was Microsoft or Google. Um, Apologies to any company which I'm getting wrong here. Um, it, it because the AI program had um, been written by a certain kind of person. It meant that that automatically skewed the sort the sorting process to a certain kind of person. And then you got tons of perfectly valid candidates who were just dismissed out of hand. And it's, and yes, okay, lots of people are applying for lots of jobs all the time, all over the world. But to have such a, a sort of a, a, an absolutely arbitrary mm. system behind mm. it is, is pretty scary. Well, you use the word serendipity and it sniffs that out, doesn't it? Or snuffs that, snuffs that out. I mean, I think uh, you can see why... AI is attractive, of course, to businesses who can streamline their operations. There's another story in the London Times this morning about two of Britain's leading high street banks, Barclays and Lloyds, closing yet more branches. It's very hard to find a branch of a bank. AI is going to, to make banking easier, but it's also going to take an awful lot of jobs uh, in the process. Um, we all moan, don't we, if we've got to get something sorted, whether it's our internet server or sorting out a, a, an erroneous credit card payment or something and you have to hang on the phone for half an hour, AI will probably mean all of that can be sorted instantaneously. So as you say, you can see the 
the attraction of it and, and, and how we will all be drawn towards it. The question is, where, where does it stop? There's a really interesting line from, uh, from Yoshua Benjo, actually. Um, he sees a, a, an analogy between AI pioneers and how the creators of nuclear weapons viewed what they'd done. Uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the nuclear bomb, would later tell President Truman of the US that he feared he had blood on his hands and that when he watched the first nuclear explosion in New Mexico, a verse from the Bhagavad Gita came to mind, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Brilliant. Uh, and it is an interesting <laughs> point, isn't it? You know, the people who let AI step beyond what is reasonable, what is justifiable, and what is controllable could bring about chaos. And there's so many... that I think also the, the, the issue that we have here is the fact that, as is always the case, look at the internet, the thing is... The, the problem is solved by a piece of technology, but you can't... They haven't regulated this piece of technology. So for a long time now, organisations are picking up AI packages off the shelf. Mm. And... Once you have all that in place, it is incredibly difficult to go back and unpick and regulate and rule because you're going to have some sort of global world order. One thing that I'm quite interested in is is, is at your at your job um, dealing with music. Mm. Well, we were talking before you came into the studio that there are, that you get a lot of organisations which choose music through algorithm depending on the effect that it has on your heart rate on a certain, at a certain time, day or night. And whether that is a good or a bad thing, that's not something that you do because there's a, a tremendous amount of care, isn't mm. there? Choosing what your audience wants. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the doomsayers have been predicting the end of traditional radio for, for probably a decade, that the internet and services when it comes to music radio like Spotify, like Google Music, like Apple Music would, would take control. But I think increasingly people want something that's personalised. They want something that is a genuine human choice, not an algorithm's choice. And I think that's, that's very good. I mean, AI could write a symphony, there's no question about it. And it would probably sound quite convincing it would sound like a symphony except it would sound like a symphony that already exists because what ai can't do is create something truly original and new it's all in essence going to be based on stuff that's already happened so an ai symphony would be you chuck into a pot a symphony by shostakovich Mahler, brahms beethoven tchaikovsky It'd be huge and you get out of it an AI symphony, but it's probably not original. Can AI write a novel? Well, yes, but what would it be? You know, would it really be a novel if it was written by a machine? AI could be doing what we're doing now. AI could be reviewing the newspapers using our voices, and but it wouldn't be real. And there's that joy of actually, but this is the whole thing. It's making that emotional connection with your audience, isn't it? So when you have someone getting into contact with you, you kind of know what kind of music is going to soothe the soul mm. at that per certain time of day. Yeah, and, and or, or we'll have a go at it. And I can't come up with the definitive answer. AI and algorithms will suggest there is a definitive answer. Of course, there's not. And that's the great thing about human fallibility that AI can't really deal with. Uh, what else have you spotted today? Um, well, let's, should we talk a bit about uh, uh, the arts and, and arts funding? Uh, Interesting story in The uh, Guardian, uh, another uh, British daily campaigners hail victory after BP ends 27-year sponsorship of British Museum. Uh, this has become a huge issue in the arts world, who you can and can't take funding from. And there are several bogeymen, if you like, out there who cause an awful lot of controversy amongst 
protesters saying actually big arts institutions shouldn't be taking their money. Uh, BP is one of them. Uh, Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family who make OxyContin, uh, is another. BAE Systems, the British defence contractor who have supported various uh, arts organisations in the UK, have also uh, come under uh, come under attack. The problem is museums, concert halls, opera houses, orchestras, theatres need money and it's getting increasingly hard to find it. There is no new generation, is there, of great big benefactors and sponsors? You don't see Apple sponsoring the National Gallery or the, or the Guggenheim, do you? You don't. And, and, I mean, Apple have done some art sponsorship, but something has changed in that sense. I mean, there was a real sense of civic responsibility towards supporting the arts. You see it particularly in American cities, you know, where uh, the big cities, particularly the big former industrial cities, places like Cleveland or Detroit, are incredibly proud of their symphony orchestras. Yes, they had giant factories, they had industries, they had lots of jobs, but in order to become a full-service city, they had to have a great orchestra. So the companies, you know, Ford, for example, invested incredibly heavy, heavily in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra when that was being... And did, until very recently, indeed still support some of the, 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 the DSO's work. But that sort of sense of, of a need to take responsibility, you get it from individual patrons as well, is changing. And, for example, it's a massive problem in San Francisco, around Silicon Valley, where the tech bros aren't interested in being philanthropists in the traditional sense. Yes, there are things they'll sponsor, but they're unlikely to be old-fashioned forms of the arts or long-established forms of the arts, and that's a problem for, for museums and, and orchestras and other cultural institutions. And it, it does mean you're scrabbling for less and less and less, doesn't it? Well, let, let's cross now to Paris. Uh, I'm joined down the line by uh, Agnès Parier, the journalist and author of Notre Dame, The Soul of France. A very good morning to you, Agnès. I always ask you this question. How's Paris looking this morning? <laughs> It's as glorious as when we last spoke. <laughs> okay. Can I just say, can I, can I say hello, Anis? And can I also say, your book about Notre Dame is a fantastic read. It is a beautifully written piece that, that reads with the energy and electricity of a, of a newspaper article, but covers a vast amount of detail. And it's such a, it's such a satisfying book. I would heavily endorse it to anyone. I think you oh, have a fan, Anya. Yeah. Kind. Thank you very much. I'm actually looking at Notre Dame because I've got a view from my, uh, from my desk, from my office, and uh, she looks glorious. Although the scaffoldings are really going higher and higher by uh, by the day because you know uh, the um, the spire is being assembled and and uh, before uh, the top of the spire of course the uh, the roof and uh, uh, it's it's quite exciting but it's a it's a real beehive you know three cranes and the most impressive looking cranes I've ever seen um, they have five arms I don't know if you say that in English but uh, uh, they are monsters all around Notre Dame and uh, and it will you know, open on the 8th of December. Did I tell you this? 8th of December wow. at 11.15am. That's what we've been told. Okay, I'm booking my Eurostar now. No, not this we're coming year, to your flat. 2024. 2024. <laughs> okay, only a year. You, you've conjured an image there of like wonderful magical surgeons repairing something. Oh, here. completely, completely. It, it, feels In, like, it feels like when Notre Dame reopens, Paris is going to smile, doesn't it? There's that sense that this will be something the city, which has been battered in recent years can now be really proud of once again. Is that right? 
Oh, it is right. And also, it's strangely, I mean, it's been, of course, catastrophic, but all the things that have been able, they've been able to do, which they haven't been able to do in more than 850 years, it was never closed before to the public. So, you know, so for a few years, uh, archaeologists uh, went in and and uh, there was a, this great documentary on uh, the Franco-German TV channel Arte in, in three parts. I really recommend it because the archaeologists have deciphered and discovered how exactly it was built uh, by medieval uh, stone ma- masons uh, almost 900 years ago. And we didn't know because uh, a lot of the archives, a lot of the, the documents didn't uh, uh, didn't come to us uh, and didn't survive. Uh, so you've got plenty of, of you know discoveries like this, and and I'm hoping um, that uh, the space will be restored to its gothic uh, splendor because. Uh, you may know this if, if if you went inside in the last few years. You know there were a lot of shops. It was quite uh, crammed with things that you didn't want to see this uh, there because uh, 14 million people visited Notre Dame uh, every year, and it was extremely touristic. And now we we're hoping that all this stuff. Uh, that was inside shouldn't have never been in the nave uh, will be under the uh, in the car park in the old uh, car park that is now disused under the the square opposite Notre Dame and this is where uh, all the tourists will be able to access it uh, as opposed to before you had queues and the Parisians just can walk through uh, the the parvis as we call it that is to say the huge square uh, opposite uh, the entrance. So, uh, you know, all in all, it will be complete uh, recomposition of um, of the Ile de la Cité, the uh, the island at the heart of Paris. So, so uh, there's even much more than uh, the reopening of, of that wonderful building to to look forward to. Um, and yes, while we while we've got you a moment ago, Petrok and I were talking about the, the the difficulty that arts institutions and cultural institutions have in getting sponsorship um this is something that really rose to the surface a couple of days ago didn't it with the um with the Cannes film festival and justine trier the the, the palm door winner having basically launching a, a rather blistering attack on the way that french culture is going i mean sitting from this side of the the the, the, the channel i think petrock and i would rather would rather love the, the the british to be as committed to culture as the french are well, I mean, the, the only thing is uh, Justine Trier, uh, who uh, got the Palme d'Or for an excellent film called Ana- Anatomy of a Fall, uh, was completely wrong. <laughs> um, you know, France is a paradise inhabited by people who think they live in hell. Uh, so she uh, talked about uh, the neoliberal French government. Uh, she talked about the me- merchandising um, and commodification, if you'd like, of of culture. But um, it is not the case. Uh, for instance, her film uh, was uh, subsidized by uh, the, the, uh, the French 
public and, and, and French taxpayers a, a great uh, system that allows France uh, to uh, um, to have a very healthy, very buoyant um, cinematography and be able to finance a lot of first and second films, for instance. Um, and um, and the other thing too is during COVID, do, do you remember so many in Britain or in America, elsewhere in the world, so many artists, you know, young musicians or or, or actors had to retrain and and uh, oh, because they time. they didn't receive any money or, or not enough uh, from uh, from the state. Well, it wasn't the case in France. Uh, President Macron said, "Okay, well, you'll be allowed two years of uh, full um, uh, state support because in France we have this system by which if you uh, any artist or any technicians actually uh, working in culture um, has to work 512 hours a year in order to uh, get a full um, state support. That is to say, you can only, if you, you're hoping to work you know, many more hours than 512 hours, but if you don't, well, you can uh, you, you, you get a salary from the state, from the system that is called intermittent du spectacle. Um, and you also get um, holidays, uh, paid for holidays, etc. So it means you can uh, keep up um, uh, perfecting your craft, your skills, um, and uh, um, not having to be a bartender or not having to have odd jobs as a, you know, uh, teaching uh, in order to uh, to survive. Now, so uh, Justine Trier was actually completely wrong because she <laughs> comes from that uh, system that is uh, such, uh, uh, you know, that so many people admire in the world. I mean, and she could also have used her time um, because it's such a platform to talk about Ukraine or uh, Iranian women, but she talked about how France is a terrible country for artists. Poor thing. Um, I'm sure she'll live. Um, you mentioned a moment ago the idea that being a bartender is something that you do to support your life. Um, there <laughs> is uh, there is skill and art and artisanship in this, especially if you are the cocktail king of the Paris Ritz. Um, there's a gentleman called Colin Field who's uh, been at the Ritz in Paris for 30 years behind the bar. Um, and he's retiring, Agnes. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, thoughts of Hemingway liberating the <laughs> Paris Spa, uh, you know, during the liberation of Paris in August 1944 uh, come to mind. Um, although he obviously, uh, that Colin was not uh, in activity uh, then, uh, but perhaps his father, I don't know, uh, or his grandfather. Um, it's a special place, the Ritz. Yes, uh, I went there once because uh, a long time ago because it's such a legendary you know uh, mythical place um and what i like um when you you read that uh, a long article in the Times um, and the interview of Colin Field is that there's no music in the oh, bar that's great. because yes yes yeah. i mean 
If only, you know, there was Radio 3 and Petrock. Uh, <laughs> but, but no. I'm not um, quite sure. Well, he does the breakfast show, so I'm not entirely sure I'd be up for a clean, one of Colin's clean, dirty martinis oh, at 7.30 in the morning. No, oh, Petrock has said he didn't. It's a great story, actually, because I, I hadn't realised, I mean, the bar had been uh, <clears throat> closed uh, for 12 years when, when he went there in 1994. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, Ingrid Bergman, John F. Kennedy, Noel Coward, Graham Greene were amongst previous uh, visitors Mohammed Al-Fayed when he bought the Paris Ritz had tried to reopen it but failed and it was basically being used uh, <coughs> excuse me basically being used as a storeroom uh, and this guy got hold of it Colin Field and said let me have a go with it he ran it single-handed he got the pictures up on the wall he recreated the space and turned it into Paris's most exclusive uh, drinking spot um, very against modern cocktails it seems he thinks a cocktail should have no more than two or three ingredients. Quite right. Uh, he's not into the ideas of cocktails no, that have ten different things going no on. No pineapple on the outside. No pineapple on the outside. Lots of mint, actually. There's a big pile of mint in front of him in the picture where he's shaking a cocktail. I love also hotel bars. I just think they're <laughs> really special. I mean, I, I think of kind of fabulous evenings in hotel bars. The Chinnery Bar at the Mandarin Oriental in Hong Kong. Uh, there's a wonderful bar on top of the Majestic Hotel in Saigon. Uh, there's a fabulous bar overlooking the Chao Phraya River at the Oriental in Bangkok or the Horseshoe Bar in the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin, tiny bar, you know, the small hotel bar that maybe only seats 20 or 30 people that has a regular staff of bar men or women who are known to their locals. You know, if you go there more than once, you're treated as a local and they're not too well known. So they never get overcrowded. They're my favourite sort of bar. Right. Those are, those are Petrox bars. I'm going to I'm going to chuck Claridge's and the bar at La Mamunia in Marrakesh into Both the mix. Absolutely fantastic. And yes, favourite hotel bars. This is a book, well, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> The one in Saigon uh, that um, Petron just uh, mentioned. Is it the Hotel Majestique? Is it that is, what you exactly, said? Yes. yes yeah. I went there a few years ago and that's quite uh, spectacular. And you think about Graham Greene and uh, you think about all the ghosts uh, that uh, are in, the, in this uh, rooftop bar, as they, they would call it today. But there are an endangered uh, species, I think, uh, all these bars with a, with a lot of personality and a lot of history, because you, you also come across, for instance, the, the Lutetia uh, Hotel um, in Paris with that incredible history attached to it, because this is where, for instance, where, uh, well, first of all, uh, where the Gestapo uh, had uh, one of his headquarters in Paris during the war, and also where um, the deportees uh, came back to um, from concentration camps. So uh, a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, history there and they've completely renovated it. And I must say the bar is just one of the those luxury bars you can see all over the world. So um, I'm all for it's like cafes. I mean, the, you know, the uh, the real places with with history and atmosphere are not exactly. Um, I mean, they are they are disappearing every year. And so uh, I don't know what we should. Do. <laughs> that, that, well, we're going to have to keep going to them. Um, <laughs> I think that's what we and do. Drink. You're talking yeah. about cafes. That's a big thing here because London doesn't do cafe culture in the way that Paris does. But also, uh, Vienna's my big place for cafes. Mm. If you go to Cafe Landman and you just think, my God, Marla's out here. This or is, Cafe Havelker, I particularly like. That one's a good fan. Are you, are you a, are you a Viennese cafe goer, Agnes? Or, yes, I mean, you've got, you don't need to leave. 
really. Paris. <laughs> no, I mean, I love Vienna. And there's this cafe, you might, I can't remember the name now, but uh, it's uh, it hasn't changed in what, uh, it, it looks completely 1950s. Um, and it's worn out and, and worn out also the locals. Um, and uh, you step into uh, another time when you, you, you go there, but I can't remember. And the, the, key uh, thing, the key place not to go in Vienna, well, the, the Café Central and, and Café Zaka, which have both become oh, yes. terrible mm. tourist attractions. Terrible. And I they, they both have beautiful interiors, but queues of people around the block. You don't want to go to a cafe with a, with a queue. You don't want to sure. go to a cafe. Well, no. I don't know you. Well, they sit there for 10 minutes and you just think, goodness me, Freud sat here. And then you just have your overpricing and you go. But you yeah. just at least you have a slight sense of the geography. I guess it's it. ticking a box, isn't it? It's, it is. it's on a bucket list. I need to it, go yeah. and see this. Uh, but it's, it's quite good fun. Um, Agnes Paye, thank you so much indeed for joining us on the line from Paris. Actually, quick question before we go. What are we all drinking in these bars? Um, you know, first at the bar, uh, what are we ordering? Agnes, first. Well, I'm not into cocktails at, at all. So I think oh. it will be, a, I'm going to be very boring, but uh, they've got a good wine list. It will be a glass of red wine. Glass of red wine. Uh, Petrak, I suspect that in the time that we spent together in the last half hour, I suspect that a cocktail has passed the lips of Petrok Trelawney once or twice well, in his maybe life. Maybe once or twice. Um, I'm, I'm very traditional. I'm either a, a, a straightforward, very dry uh, gin martini. Yes, uh, not vodka. A, Never not, vodka. No, not vodka. Or a Negroni. And I, I, I feel Negronis have become a bit, uh, a bit sort of ubiquitous now. Everybody's doing them. Um, I was drinking Negronis 20 years ago when they were a rare thing and you often had to explain... <laughs> To a bartender, that it was one third gin, one third Campari, and one third red vermouth or Punta Mess. Uh, but now they have become a little. You can even buy ready made Negroni, do which you ever, seems slightly sinful. Do you? It is, well, slightly awful as well. Do you ever step down and take it easy with a Negroni Sbagliato? Because that's, yes. that's what I do when I'm just sort of saying, I'm going easy on this. Yeah, lunchtime. It's 12 o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Petro Trelawney, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. And thanks also to Agnès Paris on the line from Paris with her view of Notre Dame. Now, what would you give to live in a world free of heartbreak where you're reunited with lost loved ones? Well, it's a question the British author Beth Lewis explores in her debut novel, Children of the Sun, which came out last week. Set in the 80s, the story is inspired by the sci-fi obsessed Heaven's Gate cult and the deadly Jonestown cult that saw 900 Americans commit suicide in 1978. Monocle's Monica Lil sat down with Beth Lewis to discuss her psychological thriller and she began by asking her what Children of the Sun is about. It's a book about a cult set in the 1980s in the Adirondacks in upstate New York and it is uh, it's one of those doomsday cults that were very popular in in the 70s and 80s and it focuses on a reporter the main character James who goes into the cult to uh, write an expose you know to to get the scoop um, essentially but as he learns more about the cult its members their stories how they come to be there he realizes he has a lot more in common with them than he anticipated and he ends up questioning whether or not he should become a member himself so in terms of the inspiration when I was reading up on your book it was saying that the inspiration behind the cult and what it's based on is the Heaven's Gate cult, which was present in the yes. seven, around 20 years from the 70s to the 90s, I yes, think it was. That's right. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about that and why you were drawn to that cult in particular? The Heaven's Gate cult is is really fascinating and I've always been aware of it because their big, their big end 
um, happened when I was a kid. And so it was kind of on the news and it was all very exciting in a very macabre way. Um, You know, so for anyone who doesn't know, they were a essentially a, a sci-fi cult obsessed with Star Trek that started in the 70s, started by a woman, um, though ended by a man. And the their core belief system was that they believed that they would, if they, if they left their earthly bodies, they would ascend to a spaceship that was flying in the wake of the Hale-Bopp comet, which arrived in '97, so they they took that celestial event as as their end game, and they they all committed suicide. So I was going to ask you in your own words what the definition of a cult is, because it's I think most people kind of align that with extreme religion, but is that entirely true, or is there a mixture? Um, it, it can be, um, but really a cult is a group who follow a a single leader rather than a higher belief system like a religion does. Um, They often are extreme in their beliefs. They often are isolated and they um, often also have a, a kind of single answer to the problem of the world. You know, that's tends to be the hallmarks of a cult. They offer you the one thing that you need or that you're asking for in in this world. And that's not what a religion does. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the main hallmark of a cult is the is the charismatic leader that yeah. sucks everyone into it. Um what do you think it is about cults that we as a population in general find so interesting? Because obviously it's quite confusing because as you say, you um, saw it on, when you were young on the TV and you found it really interesting and you know making entertainment out of these experiences is quite contentious so what do you think about that what, what do you think it we, well, it draws us in I think from a viewer it's the same thing that draws us to serial killers true crime it's this fascinating look at the extremes of humanity and with a cult, it's not just the extremes of one person, like it is with a serial killer or a murderer or something like that. It's the extremes of a huge group of people, sometimes dozens, sometimes thousands of people, that have all decided in one way or another to believe this person and this set of ideologies and to give up everything, usually, in their lives. And that was the author Beth Lewis there, speaking to Monocle's Monica Lillis. And that's all we have time for Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to all my guests and to our studio engineer in London, Tamsin Howard, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday it returns next weekend. Next up, a look at the world of magazines with Fernanda Augusta Pacheco on the stack. I'll be back tomorrow for Monocle on Sunday, but for now from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. <laughs>